Let's have a word of prayer. Could we please? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Community Baptist Church. Thank you for its leadership. Lord, thank you for the crowd tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. Lord, I really need help. I would love to connect to this congregation. Lord, would you help them? Would you help them to connect to the speaker tonight as we look together in your living, infallible breath called the Word of God? Lord, I pray that you just meet each and every heart where it needs to be met. More importantly, may those hearts meet you where you need to be met. Lord, help us to understand your word and have an appreciation for it far greater tonight as a result of our time together. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. There was a young man. I think you'll find this incredible. There was a young man. He was 15 years old. And he was wrestling with this whole idea of hell, heaven, Bible, eternity. Wasn't quite sure he believed in any of that. And it was always his family's custom that every Sunday morning they would go to a Methodist church not far from where they lived. One Sunday morning they got up to go to that Methodist church and there had been a bad snowstorm and they weren't able to go. But this 15-year-old kind of had a lot of initiative. And he got on some snow gear and he walked down the sidewalk to a little corner Baptist church that he was just kind of curious about. Slipped into the back door and sat in the back pew. There were literally a handful of people there that morning. The pastor of the church was unable to make the service because of the snowstorm. So the morning message after a few hymns consisted of a deacon getting up and sharing his testimony based on a verse in Isaiah. That deacon, bless his heart, only preached for about 10 or 15 minutes. But he gave an invitation because he had worked in the plan of salvation in his testimony. And don't you know, that 15-year-old walked the aisle. And that deacon had the awesome privilege of taking him to a side room and introducing him to the Lord Jesus Christ. He got saved. Now, friends, when I tell you he got saved, no, he really got saved. He got saved. They tell me that the typical teenager, the typical young person in our society today spends on average seven hours a day in front of some kind of screen, whether that be a cell phone, an iPad, a computer, seven hours a day. Can you imagine, folks, would you just toy with this in your mind? Can you imagine what you would be like if you spent that kind of time in the Word of God? The Bible always causes growth. It's a miraculous book. And that's the way this 15-year-old was. He could not get enough Bible. He loved it. He loved to read it. He loved to read about it. He loved, he loved to talk about it. And as you can imagine, friends, he grew quickly. He was pretty sharp, and he grew quickly. So much so, this will shock you, that at the age of 16, that little Baptist church invited him to be their pastor, and he accepted. And at the age of 16, Charles Spurgeon, started pastoring that little church. And folks, he brought great messages, wonderful messages. His reputation got out. And the largest church of a huge city not far away called London came to him and said, Charles, would you please be our pastor? And at the age of 19, Charles Spurgeon started pastoring that large church that ran around 2,500 members. It doubled in size within the first five years of his ministry there. He was a phenomenal preacher, phenomenal preacher. Well, about five years into his ministry, he got burdened to start a Bible institute, a Bible college. 
where young men and only young men could come and study for the ministry. And I think you'll find this interesting. Not one of those students ever paid a penny in room, board, or tuition. The church paid for everything. They were so burdened to see young men go into the ministry. Well, we're, we're told that Charles, they, th that, that student body of those young preachers was his pride and joy. He used to love to stand in front of him and just share his heart. And one of the things he used to share with them all the time is he'd stand in front of him and he'd say, guys, listen to me. Whenever you're preparing a message, whenever you're putting together a sermon, always make sure to insert into that message, insert into that sermon, stories, illustrations, pictures. Because guys are like the windows of the auditorium. This was before electric light. They're like the windows of the auditorium. They let the light in. People, that is so true. Theology can be rather abstract. Theology can be sometimes hard to grasp. But when you liken it to an object lesson, when you liken it to a story, it's like, oh, I get it now. I understand. Now, lest you be tempted to debate that, may I remind you that the world's greatest preacher ever did that all the time. His name was Jesus. And he used what we call parables to illustrate some great eternal Bible truth. In fact, people, there are probably about 40 different authors used in the Bible, about 40 of them. And all of them use that technique where they pull in object lessons and it's fascinating to read Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah and all the object lessons that these men pull in to help us understand God's word and God's principles. Just about every writer does that. And what I'd like to do here tonight is I'd like to show you three object lessons kind of in machine gun fashion, just by way of introduction. In fact, let me tell you, let me just give you my plan of attack. Tonight's message is going to be an introduction to tomorrow night's message. This is a two-parter. What I want to do here tonight, just in, by way of introduction, I want to show you three different pictures that the Apostle Paul gives us to help us understand the dynamic of Christian living. So would you grab your Bible with me here this evening and go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, you Bible students might find this interesting, that 2 Timothy is probably the last letter, the last thing the Apostle Paul will ever write. He's going to die a martyr's death not, not long after he writes 2 Timothy. So it's got, a, it's got a kind of a, a, a pathos to it. It's got kind of a, a, a finality to it. And, and what, what you have in 2 Timothy is, is Paul giving a young Christian advice on how to have victory in his Christian life and, and how to live the Christian life. And, and, I, and I hope you'll be able to, to kind of apply it to your own, your own life, my friend. And, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the pictures in reverse order from what they appear in the Bible. And there's going to be a reason for that, and it'll be obvious to you here as, as we develop things. Okay, so would you look at me with, would you look at verse number 7? Verse number 7. No, no, verse 6. Verse 6, I'm sorry. Verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Are you there? All right, say amen, would you? Amen. All right, here we go. Watch this now. The husbandman that laboreth must be first or primary partakers of the fruits. What is the picture there? It's this, my friend. God is telling you through the Apostle Paul that you as a Christian are much like a farmer, a gardener. What does a farmer do? A farmer has one goal in mind, and it's always to plant seed. He wants to plant seed. And when he plants that seed, his job's not done. His job's not done. He protects that seed by keeping the weeds away. He protects that seed by watering it. He protects that seed by, by just making sure that the ground around it is, is soft and, and, and stuff that's easy to grow in it. He's, he's very, very protective of that seed. 
And he constantly watches it. And nobody else does it. It's his job. That's his seed. That's his farm. That's his field. And he's the only one that really works it. And, and when, the, when, the, when the, the seed starts to grow and, and, and it starts to bear fruit, he's the one that harvests it. And ladies and gentlemen, the picture there is, is you. That every one of you ought to be a farmer. You're planting seed. What is that seed? It's the word of God and the lives of the people that God has given you to meet, that you're around, that are unsaved. Every one of you, every one of us in this room, ought to have people on our prayer list that we know that are unsaved and we've had the opportunity of witnessing to them and giving them tracts and, and watering that seed and, and doing good works for them. You know, the Bible says that we're to let them see our good works that they may glorify your Father which is above. The Bible says that. Every one of us ought to be seed planters. My friend, when God saved you, he didn't save you as a cul-de-sac. He saved you as a freeway. And God wants every one of us to be aggressive seed planters. And that's what Paul's talking about to Timothy. Timothy, always be faithful in planting the seed. I hope, my friend, that you understand that God has got you in New Hampshire, not because you're good looking, not because it's beautiful here, but so that you can bear fruit. And that's what Paul's talking about, that we have a desire to see other people get saved. May I challenge you men, may I challenge you ladies to make that a matter of prayer in your life. God wants every one of you to be some kind of seed planter. I hope you're doing that. If not, I hope that you will. Can I just take a moment? I don't often get to do this, but I'm, can, I, can I invite you to do something? I, I, this is very self-serving. Would you let me have a little fun? Would you grab your hymn book? Would you, would you grab a hymn book? You, you guys here at Community Baptist, you use this uh, Majesty Hymns. This is by far my favorite hymn book. I love this hymn book. And would you just open to the front cover and go to the title page? The title page looks like this. If you want to look up this way, that's the title page right there. Would you look at the title page? Okay, I'm having some fun here. Just be patient with me, would you? Now, turn the look on the back of the title page, just on the back. And at the bottom there, it says consultants. Do you see that? Are you with me? Okay, consultants. Now, peruse that list. Those, those are names listed alphabetically by their last name. Would you go down to where you find Timothy McGee? Do you, let me know when you find him. Do you see him down there? Timothy McGee. Okay, do you see him? Did you see him? Okay, let me tell you about Timothy. I met Timothy at Boston University. Boston University is 26,000 students, one-third of which are Jewish. It is a very, very heathen place. It is an ungodly campus. But I got a master's degree there in trumpet. And on the train that I rode every day to go to school, I met Timothy McGee. He was sitting there, and I recognized him. I remember seeing him in the School for Arts there, and he was a percussionist. He was a rock and roll drummer, also an orchestra drummer. In fact, he still plays percussion for the Plymouth Symphony there in, in Massachusetts. But anyway, I, I met Timothy, and, and I sat down across from Timothy, and I introduced myself, and he introduced myself, and he was kind of friendly, and I started fishing to things that, that you know, common ground, and, and, and I kind of made a, a friendship with him, and I found out that he liked sports. I like sports. Please forgive me, okay? But I like sports. I found out that he was a Bruins fan, and he was a Celtic fan, and he was a Red Sox fan, and he was a Patriots fan, and I was too kind of, I was too kind of, and so we kind of hit that off, and we established a friendship, and I found out that Timothy was a devout Catholic. At the age of 21, he was still an altar boy. That's how much he loved his church. 
But friends, you need to understand something between you and me. The moment I met Timothy, there was a prayer in my heart. Lord, would you help me to plant seed in the life of this young man? I found out that he had a girlfriend and, and uh, she was n not living for the Lord and he was a Catholic and we, uh, my wife and I used to have him over for dinner, him and his girlfriend, and we played tennis with him. I even, I even, he even took me to a, a Boston Bruins game, hockey, and uh, uh, the, the pretzel man came down. He, he got his great seats front row right at the blue line, and for those of you that understand hockey, and, and I said, Tim, let me buy you a pretzel. He loved those huge pretzels, you know, that they sell at the games. I said, Tim, let me buy you a pretzel. He said, no, thanks, Mike, not today. I gave him up for Lent. That's how devout he was with his faith and with Catholicism. But let me tell you what happened, people. He would get on the train on Monday morning. We'd sit across from each other, and he'd say, Mike, yesterday in church, the priest said this. And I said, Tim, your priest was right, and here's what it means. And I would have a Bible study with him. He didn't know we were having a Bible study, but we were. He was kind of fascinated by the Bible type stuff. And I would kind of, you know, the, in a Catholic church, they, they, they read the Bible a little bit, but they never explain it. And so I would explain to Tim what it meant. And slowly but surely, he began to learn that you're never supposed to pray to Mary. And he started to learn that there were a whole lot of problems with his belief system and that he was unsaved. People, for three years, I worked on Tim. For three years, I was a farmer. For three years, I was a farmer in Tim's life. I had planted seed, and I was doing all I could to fertilize it, to protect it, to make it grow. And after three years, he came out to visit me in Springfield, Massachusetts, where I was a youth pastor. We were having breakfast at Abdow's. Do you remember Abdow's? That chain is like, like Denny's, but they're no longer in, in business. But we were having breakfast at Abdow's there in Springfield, and I looked across the table at Tim because we had been talking, and I said, Tim... You're ready to get saved, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. We went out to the cab of his pickup truck, and he asked Jesus Christ to be his Savior. That's my boy. You just read his name. Oh, he grew, people. He grew quickly. For one year in his life after becoming a Christian, he would go to a good Bible-believing fundamental church Sunday night and to his Catholic church on Sunday morning. It takes a while for him to wean off that Catholicism. It's very addictive. But friends, he got saved. He grew quickly. He is now the music director of a church there in the Boston area. He's the head of the school board, Christian school board. He's, a, he's made me a grandfather in the Lord. That's my boy. That's my boy. And I'm sharing that with you tonight, people, because Tim McGee has had an effect on your church. He's in your hymn book. My boy! My boy, my seed has had an effect on your church if you use that hymn book. Isn't that cool? I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of him. People, am I weird? No. I'm just obeying 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. What are you doing? What are you doing? I hope it's an active prayer request in your life. What a picture. Now, let me show you the next one. Jump up one verse, would you please? Are you guys okay tonight? You seem a little bit dead. Are you, you okay? Verse number five, watch this. Oh, this one's fun. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Verse five. Okay, watch, watch, watch. No, no, and if a man also strive, oh, note that word. You might want to circle it because you're going to see it again. If a man strive also for the masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive, there it is again a second time, lawfully. 
Now, you know what that's referring to, folks? That is referring to athletics. There is no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul's a sports fan. Over and over again, he alludes to, he talks about running the race, he talks about fighting the fight, he talks about wrestling, I mean, he, he talks about boxing. He's a sports fan, and you know, people, and that's under inspiration. So you know what that tells me and tells you? That evidently God is a sports fan. He's the one that said, Paul, I want you to use that analogy in my book. So Paul did. Isn't that interesting? Paul's a sports fan. So those of you that look down your nose at me, back at you. Back at you. And friends, what that verse is talking about is this. That a great athlete, not just a weekend hacker like I am at tennis... No, we're talking about the top of the heap, the Tom Brady's, if you will, the LeBron James's. What that verse is talking about is that the guys that are really at the top, that are really at the pinnacle of the sports world, are always very, very disciplined. That's what the word lawfully means. They're very disciplined. You're not going to, young people, be able to find a picture on the Internet of LeBron James smoking a cigarette. Does he have convictions against cigarettes? Absolutely not. He's as unsaved as a skunk. But why doesn't he smoke a cigarette? Because he knows it will hurt his game. You with me? He knows it'll hurt. You can't, you know, Tom Brady. Tom Brady, I don't know if you've read this in your career as a Patriots fan, but that guy is legendary. The NFL looks at him like, wow, you are amazing because of his discipline. Let me give you an example. Oh, teenagers, I'm going to ruin your day. Tom Brady is never out of bed past 9 o'clock at night. He's always up at 4.30 in the morning, during, even during off-season. He works out twice a day. He's always the first one in the workout room. He does not touch alcohol, even though he has no convictions against alcohol. He just knows that that will really hurt your body, so he, he abstains. He will not eat ice cream unless it's made out of avocado. Blech. He is very, very disciplined, very disciplined. Le folks, Tom Brady is legendary in his discipline. How much more ought you to be legendary with what you allow in your life? Because you're doing something far greater than Tom Brady will ever do. You're doing something far greater than LeBron James will ever do. You are running for, you are fighting for, you are wrestling for the King of kings and Lord of lords and will receive eternal reward. They got a temporary trophy that collects dust and nobody here could tell me who won the Super Bowl nine years ago. It's very temporary. Not you. You're what you're doing for the Lord counts for eternity. But my friend, you cannot be godly. And Paul told this to Timothy over and over again in the two letters that he wrote. He said, Timothy, you can't be godly. You can't be useful unless you're very disciplined. Friends, there are things out there. Young people, listen carefully. There are things out there that are going to hurt you. There are things out there that are going to hurt your ability to be the right kind of Christian. You've got to learn how to say, no. No, I'm not going to watch that. Yes, I know Taylor Swift is incredibly popular, but no, that's not the kind of music that I should allow in my life as a Christian. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to let that in my life. And yes, yes, I am going to read my Bible every day. Yes, I am going to watch my thought life. Yes, I am going to be in church every time the doors are open. Folks, that is great, wonderful, eternal discipline. Could I get an amen? amen? 
All right, just want to make sure you're awake. Now, let me show you where I'm really going, okay? Let's look at the third one, okay? Jump up to verse number three, I think, is what I want. Oh, what I do with my Bible. I set it down somewhere. Oh, there it is. Verse three. Verse three. Is that what I want? Do I want verse three? Yeah, 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 it is. Okay. All right, watch this. Put your seatbelts on. We're going to have fun. Watch this, people. Verse three. Thou, therefore, endure. Next word out loud. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hardness? Hardness? Are you telling me that being a Christian is going to be hard? If anybody tells you it's easy to be a Christian, punch them in the forehead and tell them Pastor Chris sent you. <laughs> it is hard to be right. It is hard to do right. It is a fight. But let's read on. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good, what church? Soldier, I am looking at ah, soldiers, soldiers. Can I remind you people of New Hampshire tonight what a soldier is all about? Yes, they look good in their uniforms. Yes, they make, they make some money. Yes, they represent our country. But let me tell you about a soldier. No matter what branch of the military you join, whether it happens to be Navy, which stands for never again volunteer yourself. Whether it is Army, which stands for ain't ready for Marines yet. Amen. Amen. Whether it stands for Marine, which means muscles are required, intelligence not essential. No matter what, no matter what branch of the military you join, people, no matter what you join, they are going to do something very mean. The very first day that you go to that camp, they are going to put you in boot camp. Even you women that enroll, they're going to send you to boot camp. And you know what they do in boot camp? They're mean. They're mean. They're going to try to toughen you up. I have never talked to a man in his right mind who wasn't on drugs that said, huh, boot camp. Oh, that was so fun. I have nothing but fond, fuzzy memories about boot camp. It was just, they were so nice to me. I got to sleep in. I got to watch TV. I got to eat whenever I wanted. I got to drink Mountain Dew to my heart's delight. I mean, it was, mwah. no, I have never heard that. And if you ever do hear that, you're listening to a moron. <laughs> Let me tell you what they do. They send you to boot camp. And you know what they do in boot camp? They have one goal. They want to teach you how to be a killer, a killer. They're going to teach you how to fight, even in the Navy, even in the chair force. They're going to teach you how to fight, how to fire a gun, how to kill, how to defend yourself. That's not very pretty. But friends, what I want you to understand is that is the number one calling of a soldier. God has called every one of you that are saved to be his army. Why? Because you look good? No, trust me. God has called you to be in his army to fight, to fight. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I know I'm in New England, and what I'm saying right now is politically incorrect to be a fighter and not a lover, but you've been called to fight. I don't know how you feel about fighting, but let me share with you something kind of personal. You are looking tonight, people, 
at a real live hockey referee. I am a professional hockey referee. When I'm in town, they use me in Greenville, South Carolina, where our local team is called the Greenville, you love this, the Greenville Swamp Rabbits. Their slogan is fear the ears, but they are a member of the ECHL in first place right now, I would have you know, but they will use me in home games and I am not on the ice, I don't skate. What I do do is they'll often put me behind the goal with that button that makes the red light go off that tells the referee that the puck went all the way across the red line, or more often I'm in what's called the penalty box, where if a player is naughty, they are sent to that penalty box, and if it's a minor penalty, they serve two minutes. If they get into a fight, it's a five-minute what they call major. If they've also done a penalty on, on top of that fight, they can get up to seven minutes in one sitting. I had one time where I had a guy who had a double minor and he got in a fight, nine minutes he was in my box. Well, friends, let me tell you something. I was doing a game one night and I was in the visitor's penalty box and there was a good fight. Now I know some of you ladies are bothered by the fact that I use the word good. You men understand there's something fascinating about fights. I know they're wrong, they shouldn't be fighting, children don't fight, they shouldn't fight, but if you do, can I watch? <laughs> There's something fascinating about a fight. And these guys, these two guys, they went at it, I mean, it was a snot locker fight. And the referees ushered them off the ice and the visitor came to my box and he was hot and he was heavy and he was sweaty and bloody and he sat down on the bench with a huff and I closed the door and when you have a player in your box like that, you just give, you give him the space. It's a small box, you can't give him too much and they always stink, but, but you, just, you just leave them alone, let them, let them simmer, make sure they have some ice if they need it and, and you just let them, do, you know, let them incubate for a while, okay? Well, so I did that. This guy came in and the game continued on and all of a sudden I heard, as I'm watching the game, I heard from behind me, so how did I do? I whirled around and I said, excuse me, because this is weird. I, I said, excuse me? He said, how did I do? I said, how did how'd you do what, in your fight? He said, yes. I said, well, you held your own. You did a good job. He said, good. And I realized he wanted more information. So I said, you'll be interested to know that you picked a fight with the number one fighter for Greenville, and you held your own. You know what he said? awesome. <laughs> he was proud, and I found out as we continued to talk, I found out that this was his very first professional hockey game. He had just been drafted from the University of Minnesota. He had just gotten in his first professional hockey fight, and he wanted to have a good showing to his teammates. He was so proud. What a picture of you. What a picture of you. You no longer have to get whipped by the devil. You no longer have to give in to sin. You are now a soldier. God is working on you. God has sent you to boot camp. It's called the Bible. And God is training you. And, and every one of you ought to have an attitude, even you ladies. Oh, I can now fight for the king of England. I can now be on the winning side. Awesome. Awesome. I want to fight. I want to take a stand. I want to be a right kind of, I want to be a, a good soldier for Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of attitude? If not, you need to get right. God has called every one of you to fight. But friends, as I say that here tonight, the word fight implies something. The word fight, if you're going to get into a fight, it assumes, it kind of implies that you've got an opponent. There's somebody you're fighting. Who is that? Who are you fighting? 
Okay, thank you for that answer. The devil. That's a good answer. But could I tell you something about the devil? Let me ask you a question, congregation. You answer me, okay? What was the devil before he was the devil? An angel. From the Bible, what do we know about angels? Can an angel be omnipresent everywhere at once like God? No. He can only be at one place at one time, right? Okay, now, let me play with you. If I were the devil, and I've been called that many times, but if I were the devil, why would I come after you? What are you doing, lady? What are you doing, sir, that scares me? If you're like most American Christians, you're not doing anything that scares me. I can't take your salvation. God has not given me that ability or power. I can't rob you of your salvation. The only thing I can do is, is try to make you lukewarm. Because I know, as a devil, I know that the thing that disgusts God the most is not a hot Christian or a cold Christian, but a lukewarm. I think I've done a pretty good job. I've made a whole lot of churches, and I've made a whole lot of Christians lukewarm. What do you like if you're lukewarm? Oh, I don't get too excited about this Bible stuff. I know I'm going to heaven. I know my sins are forgiven. I remember praying a prayer and asking Christ to, to save me when I was 12 years old. And, but I don't get too excited. I don't give out tracts. I don't, I don't plant seed. I leave that to people that are a lot more <laughs> gifted than, than I am. I, I, I go to church on Sunday morning, and I'm sure God's happy with that. And, but that, that, that's, that, that's all I'm going to give him. Good job. You're right where I want you if I'm the devil. Good job. People, I believe that you have a bigger enemy than the devil. And children, I want you to listen. Teenagers, I want you to listen. Adults, listen. I believe you've got a bigger enemy than the devil. There is no question that the devil hates you. There's no question that the devil would love to see you lukewarm. There's no question about that. But I think you've got an enemy that's omnipresent. And let me introduce this enemy to you tonight by telling you kind of a funny story that's true. A number of years ago at a Christian college, there was a young lady who was a junior. She was a junior in college, which means she was probably 20 or 21 years old. Psychologists tell us that men are ready for marriage at the age of 28. Women are ready for marriage at the age of 21. So this girl's a junior in college, she's 20, 21 years old, and every morning in her dorm room, the phone would ring at 7.30 in the morning, and it was always her boyfriend hundreds of miles away, and he would faithfully, religiously call every morning just to make sure she was doing fine and that they were doing fine, if you understand what I mean by that. And he called one cold morning in February, and the phone rang, and her roommates let Susan get the phone, and she ran over there, and she answered the phone, and of course it was her boyfriend, and they started having their normal conversation until the conversation took a most unique twist. This guy at the other end of the phone started tossing into the conversation the M word. Susan, maybe someday when we're married, we could blah, 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 blah. and someday when we're married, we could blah, 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 blah. he started throwing the M word in there. Well, folks, as you, especially women, can probably understand, Susan got excited. In her little heart, she's thinking, 
yes, about time this idiot grew up, about time he started thinking about the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But she had good upbringing. She had good composure. But you can just imagine she really enjoyed that phone call, so much so that she lost track of time. And all of a sudden, to her total shock, the bell rang telling her she had 10 minutes to get to class. At this particular college, you did not want to be late to class because if you were, there was a torture chamber under the library that they would take you to. I speak from experience. And she did not want to be late, so she immediately hung up the phone after telling her boyfriend he loved, she loved him. She had her books neatly stacked on top of the chest of drawers, but it was kind of a chilly morning, so she ran to the closet, grabbed a light jacket, grabbed her books, and started booking it to class. And she made good time, even though the main classroom building's a half mile away, she made good time, and it was a large lecture class, and she got in there just in time, and, and she came running into the, down, down, and she sat up front because people who sit in the front get better grades and the people who sit in the back. but uh, So she came running in, and she sat down next to her good friend right here, and she, she did, there was just enough time where she could share with her good friend about the phone call. So she got to her seat, she took her jacket off, put her books down, sat down next to her friend, and began to tell her friend about the, the phone call in a way that only a woman can. And it looked and sounded like this. <sighs> Well, her friend the whole time, her friend's going. <laughs> Finally, Susan came up for air. And her friend said, Susan, you are in your slip. <laughs> now, let me tell you what happens. Every time I use that illustration, and by the way, it's true. It's a true story. Every time I use that illustration, there are especially young men that are looking at me like, slip. You mean she had something signed by her parents that said she could be late to class. No, let me get everybody on the same page, could I please? Guys, look at me. Down south, especially where this college is, women will wear lighter material because it's warmer down there. And sometimes that material can be so light that if the sun hits it at just the right angle, it reveals way more than a godly, modest young lady wants to reveal. So they have this little trick do women have where they have kind of an underdress. My wife has got several of them. It's, it's called a slip. It's kind of like a, a, an underdress. And, and, and to show up in public in your slip is kind of like you guys showing up in your long johns. I mean, nobody really wants to see that. It kind of looks weird, like you didn't finish the job. And that's kind of what a slip is. It's kind of like long johns for women. And, and, and so I'm told that Susan looked down and literally screamed, ah! and jumped up and grabbed her jacket and wrapped up and ran out of class. She was so embarrassed. I can appreciate that, can't you? In fact, people, I can think of nothing more embarrassing than I could ever do than go out in public without the right clothes on. Could you think of anything more embarrassing? Folks, I've just introduced you to the biggest enemy in your life. The biggest enemy you've got in your life is in what you wear, not on the outside, but on the inside. The Bible tells you, Christians, that every thought you have is an article of clothing. And I wonder how embarrassed, like Susan, you would be if we could see on that screen tonight everything that you wore today. How self-conscious would you be? Friends, the biggest fight you've got, the biggest enemy you've got, 
Hear me carefully, women. Hear me carefully, men. The biggest fight you've got in your life is what you're wearing in your mind. You never grow out of this. I can tell you as a 68-year-old, it doesn't get easier. It is a fight. It is a fight. It is a fight. And every one of you have an enemy that, oh, desperately wants you to wear the wrong stuff. But may I remind you Christians tonight that the Bible very clearly teaches you that you will be held accountable for every thought that you and I think, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's found in 1 Corinthians. What do you wear? Now, what I would like to do in closing here tonight, I've got about seven minutes left. I'm going to get you out on time because I want you to come back tomorrow night. I want to there are many passages, people. This is a principle that is talked about all through the Bible, all through it. What a huge principle this is. But I want to take you to what is considered, if I could use this phrase without offending you, I'd like to take you what is considered the most famous passage dealing with your thought life. It is considered the number one psychology passage in your Bible. Can I show it to you? It's found in the book of Ephesians. We, you don't need to hold a finger in 2 Timothy. We are done tonight with 2 Timothy. But I'd like to introduce you to my text for tomorrow night. So if you want to put a bookmark there, that would be great. But I'd like to take you to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat peach cake. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat peach cake. A little acrostic there to help you remember the order. But I would like to take you to Ephesians, that masterpiece done by the Apostle Paul about the church. Ephesians, a book that I committed to memory many years ago. I would challenge you to do the same. It just takes discipline and con continually review. Ephesians chapter 4, please, okay? Ephesians chapter 4. If your Bible is open to Ephesians chapter 4 right now, would you please give me a nice solid amen? amen. All right, good. I know you're awake. Okay, here we go. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to drop you right in the middle of a paragraph, right in the middle of the section to just kind of introduce our direction, and then we're really going to develop it tomorrow night. Folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I love preaching tomorrow night's message. It is so interesting and so dynamic. I think you'll enjoy it. But let's get our toes pointed in the right direction, shall we? Ephesians chapter 4, and look with me, please, right in the middle of a thought, verse 22. Verse 22, where the Bible says that ye, being Christians, put off. Would you look at me for a moment, please? That word put off describes a dynamic that I did this morning. God has gifted me, because I'm an evangelist, I believe. God has gifted me with the ability to sleep anywhere, anyhow, anytime, any position. I can sleep on the airplane. I do that all the time. I can sleep, I can sleep in any kind of bed. I, I, and I fought, my, my wife will be in the middle of a sentence, and I'm gone. I can sleep. I sleep well. I, in fact, I like to tell people that I would like to die like my grandfather, peaceful in his sleep, unlike the other three screaming passengers in his car. I can sleep anyway, anyhow. Well, last night, I, you, you put me up this week in a nice hotel. I love that. I prefer hotels over people's homes. 
And not that there's anything wrong with people's homes, but you can be more yourself in a hotel. You don't have to worry about noises and all that stuff without being too graphic. But anyway, I slept, I fell asleep last night very quickly, could care less who won the dumb game, and I, but, but it was enjoyable. And I, and I fell asleep and I slept really well. And at about uh, 5.30 this morning, my eyes went boop! And immediately I thought I was home. And it took me a couple seconds to orient, oh, I am in Rochester. I was wearing, at that given moment, an article of clothing we call in my family, jammies. I don't know what you call them. I don't want to know. I'm the preacher. I have that privilege. Jammies. If I showed up tonight to preach, and what I was wearing to bed last night, your pastor would not let me in the building. And rightfully so. It would be weird. So, in order to get ready tonight, I had to, I'm going to throw a Bible word at you. I had to put off my jammies. In order to, verse 24, put on what I thought would be appropriate. Ladies and gentlemen, the word put off in verse 22 literally means to take off garments. And the garments that are being talked about in verse number 22 is your thought life. Thought life. Stop wearing that. Stop wearing it. But in order to stop wearing it, you got to replace it with something. you got to put on. So we call this passage the put off, put on principle. Now let's read on. I got you in verse 22. Okay, are you with me? Verse 22, let's read on. That she put off concerning the former conversation or lifestyle, talking about the way you used to be before you were saved, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. That term old man there is not talking about your husband. That term old man there is not talking about your dad. That term old man there is talking about you and your ability to this day to look and act and think unsaved. Put it off. Stop it. Can a Christian do that? Absolutely. Can a Christian look unsaved? Can a Christian be useless to God? Absolutely. The Bible says, okay now, dress yourself. Take that off. Don't, 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 don't wear that anymore. Yes, it's still in your closet, but no, 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 no. No, 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 Don't wear that. All right, let's read on. Where does this happen? Let, let's read on. Which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, verse 23, and be renewed, which means to kind of take a shower, clean up, and be renewed in the spirit or the attitude of your Gettysburg. There it is. What's your Gettysburg, Christian? Your mind. The biggest battle, lady, the biggest battle, sir, that you've got is what you're letting go on in your mind. It's not the drinking age of New Hampshire. It's not whether or not it's a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. It's not whether or not abortion's legal in the United States. It's not how high your taxes are. It's not whether or not you own a home. It's not whether or not you've got a college education. None of that matters. The biggest battle you've got, my friend, is what you're letting go on in your mind. It's the biggest battle you've got. And you never, ever, ever, those of you with white hair, you never grow out of this battle. Never. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And verse 24, let's, let's finish it here. Verse 24, and that ye put on the new man, the godly man, the Christian man, the godly way of thinking, which after God is created in righteousness and genuine, authentic, true holiness. Would you look up there this way, please? Ladies and gentlemen, let's just pretend that this door right here represents 
your mind. In fact, let's let the platform here represent, I'm standing in your mind. I'm standing in your mind. What you've just learned is that there's a walk-in closet in your mind, people. This walk-in closet is a big closet. There are millions of garments of clothing in there. That garment, that closet has a title over the door. It's called the old man closet. All of you have it. Even you deacons. Everybody, even you Sunday school teachers. Even you grandparents. All of you have got this closet called the old man closet. Verse 22 is talking about that closet. The Bible says that in that closet, there are garments that are, did you notice what it said there? Look at verse 22 again, would you please? What does it say about that closet? That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is what, people? Corrupt. So what you've just been told by God is this, that we've all got this closet. We were born with it. Nobody here is an exception. We've all got this closet called the old man closet, and everything in there is corrupt. If this is the only closet you got and it's the only closet you were born with, if that's the only closet you die with, you must go to hell because you'd stink up the place called heaven. We've all got this closet. It's called the old man closet. And understand, people, that God is not mincing any words with you when he tells you that he thinks that closet is corrupt. Let me tell you about the word corrupt. It's very graphic. It's very ugly. And the King James translators were being kind to you when they used that somewhat soft word called corrupt. Let me tell you what it really means. Have you ever worn a Band-Aid for a week or maybe a month? Or have you ever worn a cast like for a month, especially during the summertime? I know I have. And I, I remember wearing a Band-Aid one time and I, I had a severe cut. And I wore a Band-Aid for, for quite a while, had, had stitches, and I wore the Band-Aid for quite a while. And, and one day I got, um, I got the edge of the Band-Aid kind of cut on a, uh, caught on a nail, and it kind of peeled it back a little bit, and, and it revealed the flesh that was underneath. Do you remember what that flesh looks like? It was all shrivelly and white. It's all shrivelly and white. And, and I don't know how many men have done this. I'd really be curious, you women. But I was just curious. I was just curious, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what that smells like. <laughs> How many of you have done that? Would you be honest? How many? Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, wow, a girl. Yeah, good for you. Um, can I tell you something about that, that, that smell? It was pretty bad. Ugh. Lori, smell this. No, get that away from me. It's pretty bad. Why does it smell bad? Because it's corrupt. That's what that word means. It means dead. I am told, folks, that the most disgusting smell on the face of the earth is decaying flesh. That's what the word corrupt means. That's what God thinks of your ability and my ability. I am no better than anybody in this room of our ability to look and act and talk and think like we're unsaved. God says, no, 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 don't, don't let that in your life. But let me close with this, and I mean that for, sincerely. When you got saved, God became a contractor. And when you got saved, God put a brand new closet in your mind. That closet has a door. It's got millions of articles of clothing in it, and it's called the new man closet. But friends, when God gave you that new man closet, you didn't lose that closet.
And we're told over and over again that this closet lusts against that closet, that closet lusts against this, that closet. These closets are contrary to one to another, and you cannot do what you would do. They've got this continual fight in your mind. Friends, it's in your mind, and retirees, you don't grow out of this. Some of the honorous, stubborn, arrogant people I've ever met are retired. You don't grow out of this fight, people. You need to understand that. You don't outgrow it. You don't all of a sudden mature past this. That doesn't happen. Every one of you have got this fight. In the truest sense of the word, every genuine Christian is bipolar. You got that closet pulling on you. You got that closet pulling on you. And what we're going to discover tomorrow night is how do I win that fight? It's the biggest fight you've got. How do I win? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would just excite your people, would just stir them up. Lord, as we look together at this most divine, godly theology about practical Christian living, Lord, I pray that these children would pay attention. I pray that these teenagers would pay attention, the retirees, these adults, that, God, you'd bring us back tomorrow night with an attitude of anticipation, knowing that we're going to learn some more great theology and make us better soldiers. Lord, a revival is much like a boot camp. Oh, it takes discipline. It can be hard work to get here. It's hard work to pay attention and not be distracted. But, Lord, what great fruit comes of it. And I pray that you would just stir your people to be good soldiers. Father, maybe in that car on the way home tonight, dad, mom, or if they're by themselves, they could just kind of rehearse together or by themselves, rehearse what we've learned tonight and how we're doing in that fight. And God, give us a great crowd tomorrow night, would you please? Keep the snow away and let that snow not intimidate any of your people. In Jesus' name I ask it, amen.